0: Colleagues, welcome back to the office. It's Steve and welcome to the CPE Today podcast. We're gonna get started with our podcast presentation here just in a moment, but before we do, I'd like to share some insight on how you can receive credit for watching today's presentation. There are two options. You can either watch live as it's being recorded through Zoom More on that here in a moment, or you could be watching or listening on demand wherever you happen to receive content. We distribute our show through YouTube, SoundCloud, Facebook, our website, and many other places. Now, if you happen to be watching on demand on your own schedule, after watching or listening to today's class, head on over to cpetoday.com and locate today's course page. Uh, you can find our course code by looking at the footer of the presentation to see the link presented there. And it will also be mentioned throughout the presentation on multiple occasions. After purchasing today's class, you'll complete a short five question quiz on what was discussed in today's presentation. And upon passing that your certificate for your CPE credits will be automatically generated and available for download. In addition to your purchase, you can also download copies of today's presentation, learning materials, you can ask the presenter questions, and more. Now, if you happen to be watching live as it's being recorded through Zoom, your attendance will be confirmed through attendance prompts, which will occur every 12 to 20 minutes and approximately four per hour. They'll pop up automatically, and when a prompt comes up, please choose a response to confirm your attendance. It doesn't actually matter what you choose, as long as you choose something, as your response will confirm your engagement with our presentation. Attendance prompts might not be announced, so please keep an eye out for them. Now, as long as you've uh, completed at least 75% of the attendance prompts, you will receive full credit for our presentation. Your completion certificate will be delivered to you by email within two business days of the event. You can always visit cpetoday.com if you have any questions or issues with your certificate. After our presentation today, we'd love to know what you think. Uh, There will be a course evaluation that will automatically pop up. It should take you anywhere from one to three minutes to complete, and your feedback will be used to help us produce better content in the future. Now, if you have any questions or comments throughout the presentation, we'd love to know what they are. Please use the chat or the Q&A functionality to let us know what you think, or if you have any questions on the materials that are being presented. Also, please feel free to share your experience, knowledge, and insight with the class. If you have any technical issues, you can also use that functionality to ask for help. You can always find great content at CPEtoday.com. We have a variety of self-study and live courses from all topics: accounting, on it, personal development, Excel, QuickBooks, and more. You name it. Check out CPEtoday.com, and the CPE Today podcast is made available Tuesdays and Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific. And you can always find great content being discussed in that podcast every single week. If you happen to be a new user, listener, viewer of the CPE Today podcast, thank you so much for coming. Welcome. We're ecstatic and happy to have you. How about you get a free credit on us? Use coupon code ONEFREEPODCAST to check out to get a free credit for today's class. We're going to go ahead and get started with our presentation here in the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and enjoy our presentation. <laughs> Colleagues, welcome back to the office and welcome to the next section of our presentation here. Now, in this class, we have been exploring and looking at various different types of major aspects of blockchain and cryptocurrency uh, technology. We've gone ahead and we've looked at uh, what this technology is, its major use cases, its benefits, its risks. We've explored specific uh, types of blockchain uh, technology and uh, its various use cases, including uh, how it could be used for tracking uh, information for loyalty points and, or tracking information in supply chains. Uh, we also talked about in public blockchain, how it could be used for potential real world payments using traditional credit card services, and even how you can use it for discussing, i uh, sorry, or how you can actually use it for digital artwork and the like. In our next section, let's go ahead and explore how, a public blockchain transaction might work. Okay? And specifically, let's go ahead and explore this utilizing Bitcoin as our example here. Okay? Um what I really want to help you understand is some of the mechanics of what this actually looks like cuz that's a part I really feel that most people struggle with is just kind of thinking about what this might look like with respect to a specific transaction. So, in our transaction, let's just say we've got uh Ann, and is a customer And what she wants to do is she wants to actually buy something from Acme equipment. Okay. So maybe Anne's buying some raw materials, supplies, equipment, whatever, you know, but uh, instead of using us dollars, maybe she is uh, doing some international business here and uh, maybe she is buying something overseas and it's just easier to use maybe a cryptocurrency to avoid some of the headache of having to figure out what uh, foreign currency to use or Um, And this is something both the supplier and the customer can agree upon. So let's just say uh, Anne is uh, buying some of this equipment here and she's going to go ahead and buy something for 0.005 BTC. Okay. So to put that into an example here, Bitcoin at the moment is trading at uh, around um, $20,000, which is about 50% less compared to its all time high of just several months ago and 0.005, which would be, let's see, tens, hundreds, thousands. So five thousandths of a Bitcoin would be about a hundred bucks in today's money. Okay. And so she's going to go buy something, you know, maybe it's just a, a part that she needs to repair. And so, um, she sends the money and she opens up her wallet inside of her uh, blockchain, um, her blockchain wallet, you know, for Bitcoin. And, uh, she gets the vendors, uh, wallet address. So, you know, think of it, if you were to ask a vendor, where should I mail the check and the address that the, that you should send the check to, uh, the vendor sends it to her. Okay. And then she goes into her wallet and creates a transaction sending 0.005 Bitcoin to, you know, Acme in this particular case. And when she hits submit on her side inside of that wallet, that transaction is immediately committed to the bot, uh, to the blockchain. In this case, in this case, Bitcoin and then sent out to the various miners for verification. And so that that transaction will ultimately get added to a block. That block is then going to be uh calculated and settled by a miner somewhere in that Bitcoin network. And it could be a miner in the United States, it could be a miner uh in Europe, it could be a miner in South America or just about everywhere. But eventually that block, which contains not only Anne's transaction, but hundreds um uh, potentially even thousands of other transactions from people all over the world. Uh, they're all going to get calculated and settled at the same time. And when that block is finally calculated and settled, Acme will see their balance go up by 0.005 Bitcoin and, and we'll see her balance go down by 0.005 Bitcoin. Okay. So let's explore this a little bit further here. Now you heard me use this uh, phrase, verifying the transaction, settling the transaction. Well, Okay. In traditional networks, when I buy something using my American Express card, or if I were using a chase card or a Citibank card, American Express chase or Citibank, well, they're ultimately the ones again, that are going to settle this transaction. They're going to pull money out of my account and put it into whatever merchant I bought something from in Bitcoin in Ethereum and most other coins, they, they will follow this process of uh, mining one of two methods, proof of work, proof of stake. Um, but it's that process of moving money from column A to column B. It's that process of ensuring that the buyer has money to give and that the seller has a valid address to receive that money. And miners are the people who actually do this particular work. Okay, and Bitcoin using proof of work, miners are disinterested, independent of each other. They're worldwide uh, meaning anybody can mine. I mean, you can, you know, basically go get a computer with the appropriate, uh, hardware inside of it and connect to the Bitcoin network and start mining and settling transactions. And for this, you will be paid a fee. And, and if you're really good at it, you will get a, um, a, what we call blockchain reward. Okay. And what they're doing is that they take these different blocks, they perform the different check calculations to ensure that they meet specific standards, and then they move money from column A to column B, okay? And this ensures, because these miners are disinterested, independent, worldwide, um, this ensures that, you know, you can't have two miners kind of colluding together and, and committing fraudulent transactions to the blockchain. It's just, in theory, possible, but extremely unlikely, okay? And so it helps reduce risk. Uh, In many, many different ways. Okay, and so these miners process these blocks. The block itself is a group of transactions, and these transactions are held to these kind of really strict cryptographic standards. And if it doesn't meet those standards, like a you know the address is invalid, or if I go to spend some Bitcoin and I don't have the amount of Bitcoin in my wallet to spend, or if I try to commit two transactions at the same time with the same uh, Bitcoin that I want to spend, like imagine I were to xerox a hundred dollar bill and try to give you a fake copy of that, well, it gets kicked out. It gets discarded. Okay. And at initially a single miner will verify these transactions, but over hours, eventually days, weeks, months, and years, pretty much everybody will verify every single transaction in the system. And once that's verified, the block gets added to the chain. The chain is a collection of those blocks and then it becomes permanent, non-edible transparent record of every, of everything that is included ever occurred and again kind of go it back to the idea of the ledger and the pages of those ledgers and pages contain transactions and transaction is one line item in one block that gets processed throughout the whole network okay now once somebody inside of that blockchain network verifies that transaction it gets verified over and over and over again you can actually go to individual transactions themselves and it will tell you how many times a particular transaction has occurred and over the span of a couple of years, I mean, that can go up to hundreds of thousands and even millions of verifications. So that's just the way, uh, this works. Okay. And once that transaction is verified again, what we will end up seeing here is that, uh, Anne Ann will see, um, her balance go down and Acme will see their balance go up. Okay. Uh, and then, Anne can't re-spend that Bitcoin. They can't, uh, Uh, they can't send that to another person and, uh, be able to spend that transaction again. Okay. And so with Bitcoin, the system's always in perfect balance. It's mathematically impossible to be out of balance. And the system knows what the balance of every single wallet is in the system, uh, at all times doesn't necessarily know who owns every single wallet. Um, you know, it, it just knows that this address has this balance and here's the history of those transactions at any given time. And any user at any point can walk in and, and see uh, those transactions and see where, uh, in this particular case, if it's money or if it's metadata, where it came from and where it was going. So hopefully that helps visualize with respect to a little bit with respect to how it looks like to facilitate a transaction. It's really not that different than taking your credit card out and swiping it somewhere to buy something um, or to conduct trade of some sort. In our next section, let's go ahead and explore how crypto crypto assets should be treated in business today. And what I want to share with you is just some findings from a recent report released by PricewaterhouseCoopers. I'm going to be very transparent here. Um, I'm pretty good on the technology side of this, but when it comes to the accounting, frankly, there are so many specific nuanced things that uh, I'm going to pull in the big guns here and rely on some of the research and writing of our colleagues um, that have uh, kind of gone through this and have uh, uh, determined the best accounting treatments. And I want to show you this report and just a couple of things with respect to this report that I think you should know. Uh, And this report that was put out by PwC in August of 2021 uh, is one of the best documents I've come across where it actually discusses the accounting principles that should be applied with respect to the treatment of crypto assets in a company or individual's portfolio and how to apply generally accepted accounting principles uh, to those specific assets. So uh, I've got a link to this particular uh, um, white paper. It's excellent. I would highly encourage you to go through this and uh, to read through it. Uh, The author did a really good job tying it back to specific accounting standards uh, that are put out by FASB that are absolutely worth your time. And I'm gonna just kind of make this preference. Uh, if you're doing accounting with respect to these crypto assets, please educate yourself because it is frankly very murky as we'll talk about here in uh, this particular section. And then also when we talk about the IRS and some of the income tax treatments here in the United States, I'm gonna be upfront. The the guidance we have on this is extremely limited. Uh, there are no specific FASB statements, hundred percent related to cryptocurrency uh or other crypto assets like NFTs there's no like hey do this and this is how it should be treated uh, it's very much um gray and uh you really kind of need to know not only the specific asset that you're dealing with but then also the company or individual's intention of that specific asset are they holding it uh so it increases in value are they uh you know basically treating it as inventory and selling these assets uh are they receiving it as customers as a method of payment so on and so forth. And this document does a really, really good job of discussing fair market value, how to hold these things required disclosures and more. So let me share with you some key findings from this report to hopefully maybe shed some light on some of the accounting treatments. Okay. And, uh, I would also encourage you to uh, check out the report yourself. So, uh, this document, they don't specifically say cryptocurrency, they call them cryptographic assets. And I like that term because it's much more inclusive than currency. Uh, in fact, as we will talk about here, they're not currencies as all. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're assets in some way. Okay. And assets, just something that has value. Okay. Uh, currency implies a specific type of things. Okay. So cryptographic assets, crypto assets. Okay. The broad definition that they use are transferable digital representations that are designed in a way that prohibits copying or duplication. Okay. Very, very broad definition here. And in this definition, it is everything from Bitcoin to NFTs, smart contracts, and the like. It's anything that can be transferable that are designed in a way that prohibit copy and distribution. And I would also say probably have value of some sort. Okay. Now crypto assets can have value intrinsically or through another asset. And this really addresses the fact that Bitcoin has intrinsic value. Bitcoin has value because it is worth something. And because somebody on a market and exchange is willing to give you, uh, something of, of equal value for whatever asset you you're exchanging, whether it be Bitcoin, Ethereum or something else, you know, there's somebody at uh, Coinbase or Kraken or Binance or any one of these that will take your dollars, your euros, and then sell you Bitcoin, Ethereum or something else. Okay. And so Bitcoin intrinsically has value because people believe it has value. Hmm, that sounds something very similar to other things in our economy. Okay, or it could have value through another asset. That would really kind of speak to the stable coin idea. You know, um, tether, USD coin, for example, are pegged to US dollars. Uh, they have value because they're pegged to that particular currency. And in theory, uh, the people behind either one of those crypto assets are holding an equivalent number of dollars or euros or gold or whatever it has to um cover, you know, all every coin that is out in circulation. And I'll also point out, you could also have smart contracts that convey rights or equity ownership. It could be a private stock ledger as an example that's represented by a coin or a token, um, that you have the coin or token, but that coin or token is staked in such a way that provides value in some sort of other asset. So it can either come directly from the asset itself or through what that asset represents. Okay. Uh, this document really puts, uh, you know, kind of substance over form in the sense that, you know, crypto and all the related forms that it might come in are really kind of irrelevant. It's really just what the intention is and what you're looking and what you're looking to do. And regardless of whatever form that might take, its substance is more important here. And so crypto crypto assets can come in a lot of forms. Um, you know, it could provide rights to a service or product. It could give you rights as some sort of underlying asset, like a commodity, voting rights to a security, you know, or it could just have value in and of itself. So all cryptocurrencies are cryptographic assets, crypto assets, but not all cryptographic assets are cryptocurrencies. Best example of that would be NFTs. You know, NFTs aren't necessarily a currency. Um, They're much more akin to a collectible, um, but they're definitely a crypto asset. So first question you should ask here, do I have a crypto asset? And you might think to yourself, that's pretty obvious, but it's not necessarily easy. And if you do have a crypto asset, what type of asset is it? Uh, it's not always a hundred percent transparent that what you're working with is in fact an asset. It could be something else. Okay. So when a crypto asset represents an enforceable contractual right to an asset, it might meet the terms of an asset. It might not. Okay. Crypto assets provide the holder with interest in an underlying asset itself. Something. Okay. It could be the asset itself is the thing that has value like Bitcoin, or it could be that it has, uh, interest or, or, um position in something else that provides value. And that's just the, the way that we represent our, uh, ownership of that asset. Okay. Okay. The older may or may not have rights, to the underlying asset as well, and it could take several different forms. It could be what you're working with is a commodity, you know, so there are crypto assets that own gold, silver, and other precious metals. Okay. So technically it'd be more of a commodity that you're holding. Uh, it could be an intangible asset, license, copyright patent, so on and so forth. Uh, It could be a tangible asset. There are crypto funds, for example, that are buying, um, you know, they're buying artwork and they're buying other kind of rare goods. And your ownership of X number of whatever coin, you know, kind of represent your specific percent ownership and, you know, a rare piece of art, a rare coin collection, a piece of real estate or something else like that. Uh, and it could also represent some sort of financial security, um, with an ICO, initial coin operate, uh, initial coin offering. Uh, some people are using uh, crypto to be able to kind of go public without having to necessarily do the traditional work of an IPO, initial public offering, uh, in that crypto asset through a smart contract, give a ownership in, uh, internal company stock. Okay. If the crypto asset represents rights to the purchase, you know. Uh, like Bitcoin, it could be accounted for measured like the underlying asset itself in in case currency, but it is very uh, difficult uh, to be able to determine. Okay. Now in most instances, in most instances here, and not all instances, but most instances, uh, the, probably the closest thing that crypto assets would represent would be an intangible asset. Okay. Not goodwill, Um, but think of it more as an intangible asset, something you can't hold touch or feel, but yet it has value like a licensed copyright or a patent. Okay. In most instances, but not all instances. Now, the good news is, um, we do have something that we can kind of look towards to kind of determine, um, if what you have is an investment, a a question that usually pops up with respect to crypto is that, is it an investment or not? Um, and so this was actually settled in the thirties uh, 1930s that is, uh, I guess I have to distinguish now the 1930s from the 2030s, you know, cause we're coming right up on it, folks. Uh, we are the turn of the century people, you know, and, uh, in the 1930s, the, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, came out with what they call the Howey test, which was a test to determine whether certain transactions qualify as a quote, an investment contract. Okay. And so uh the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 uh kind of put some raw rules, regulations and stipulations around again investment contract around disclosure regulation things of this nature. Uh, and you can check out a little bit more with respect to this how we test here. Uh now what the requirements of are this are are really kind of uh determining, you know, if it is a financial security or not, okay? And so uh, if it meets the definition of an investment contract and thus subject to something like SEC regulations, okay? With the SEC, they're, again, also pretty focused on, um, I would say, uh, substance over form. And with some of these ICOs and NFTs and things of this nature, they might not specifically be stock. They might not specifically be a bond, but it could still be considered a security as it meets their definition. And so the Howey test has a, a couple of criteria, okay? Okay. For how you should maybe consider treating this. Okay. Uh, so if you're buying crypto, is it an investment of money? Are you giving physical dollars uh, or other types of um, financial resources to purchase this? Okay. There's an expectation of profit from this particular investment. So, you know, I'm going to buy it at one rate, hold it for a period of time, and sell it at a higher rate. Well, that's typically what we're doing with uh, financial securities. And, you know, at least uh, that's the goal, right? Buy low, sell high. Okay. Uh, The investment of money is in common enterprise, meaning it's in like an exchange of some way. Okay. And any profits uh, from the efforts of the promoter, um, sorry, any profit comes from the efforts of the promoter or third party. So these are the kind of the, the four um, kind of criteria that we should look at when determining if whatever we're doing here kind of meets that, that expectation of a, uh, an investment. Okay. So let's go ahead and have our first review question here what is the intention of the Howey test? Okay. So the correct answer here is going to be to determine if certain transactions qualify as in very strict and literal here investment contracts. Okay. The Howey test does not, you know, this came out almost a hundred years ago, a cryptocurrency wasn't even a thought. So it has nothing to do with determining if the asset is a qualified cryptocurrency. Uh, It has nothing to do with whether or not it uh, leverages uh, proof of work or proof of stake as its mining protocol. okay. And it does not have anything to do with whether or not it is uh, dealing with a taxable transaction or not. We'll talk about our IRS regulations here a little bit later on. It solely has to do with how this should be treated with respect to as an investment contract or not. Okay, some other questions that pop up here with respect to how do we want to handle um, the accounting principles for this. So question are crypto assets cash or are they foreign currency? Okay. The answer is in almost all circumstances, no, they should not be treated like foreign currencies and no, they should not be treated as cash. Cash is cash. You know, it is physical dollars. Okay. And foreign currency euros, yen, RMB, uh, whatever, you know, whatever foreign currency you have again, that's cash. Okay. A crypto asset can only be considered cash. If it is accepted as legal tendered and issued by a government, if the crypto asset is not cash, it will not meet the definition by design and by default for a foreign currency. Now the exception of this, I couldn't anticipate would be if you're working with a CBDC, a central, ba- central bank backed digital currency. Like you would see, for example, down in the Caribbean in places like Antigua and Barbuda in the Bahamas and uh, other places like this, where in fact they have a central bank backed digital currency that they're offering. Um, in principle, I guess you could treat it as cash because it has the same purchasing power as the physical currency of that land. Okay. Our crypto assets inventory, kind of an interesting thought there. Um, You know, like, are you selling Bitcoin? Are you selling uh, Ethereum? Are you selling these different uh, coins, tokens, things of this nature? Okay. Well, crypto assets are almost always purchased to sell at a future date. So when we buy something, we're, we're usually anticipating selling it at some point in the future. However, they are not tangible assets and thus do not meet the requirements to be considered inventory. Inventory has to be a physical asset. Okay. This isn't my words. These are the words of, of Gap. You can check it out. I've tried to cite where relevant, ASC 330 under inventory. You could read about those principles. Okay. However, under very strict and specific circumstances, some broker dealers might be able to consider their inventory, might be, consider, be able to consider their holdings inventory. This would be covered under ASC 940. So if you're a broker dealer, you know, imagine you've got Steve's brokerage and I hold a, uh, kind of a treasury of uh, Bitcoin. And I, instead of my clients buying them on the open market, they buy them from me at a stated rate. Well, potentially that could be considered inventory, uh, in that specific circumstance. Okay. Well, so if they're not, if they're not cash, they're not foreign currency, they're not inventory. Are they financial instruments? Well, okay. Financial instruments can include contracts, Uh, That impose an obligation on one party and convey rights to another party to deliver another type of assets, cash, stock, bonds, so on and so forth. If the crypto assets provide rights, it could be considered a financial instrument. Um, But with respect and think about, like, for example, when you buy stock, you get rights, voting rights, typically with that stock. You know, if I own a stock of Coca-Cola, I get the rights to vote for the board of directors for Coca-Cola. You know, I, I can vote on board resolutions, well, not necessarily board resolutions, but uh stockholder resolutions. Okay. Bitcoin doesn't offer that, nor does Ethereum. Um, you know, it doesn't really get to give me any rights to anything other than the fact that I own that specific um coin in this particular case. Okay. I don't get rights to a percentage of the stock, I don't get rights in the voting, I don't get rights in the ownership, nothing of that nature. So in almost all circumstances, it probably isn't a financial instrument. Uh, although in practice, it's a lot easier to describe them as financial instruments, even though technically uh, that is wrong here. Now, an exception: this could be again like a smart contract where you're in some sort of ICO, and with respect to that ICO, you know uh, you get rights to you know the company through a private stock ledger, and uh, the coin, the token, or whatever you own is just basically how that is represented. Um, it depends. Okay. An investment company or qualified investor might be able to classify their crypto assets as investments. I think the key word here though would be that qualified investor. You know, if you're in the business of buying and selling and exchanging and trading, you're a professional trader. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you could, you know, potentially potentially use that term. Um, but you know, if you're just kind of like a casual trader, probably not. So if it's not a financial instrument, if it's not inventory, if it's not cash, what is it? Okay. Well, in almost all circumstances, the, probably the most inclusive term that we would use and probably the, uh, most accurate way of accounting for this would be to consider them intangible assets. Okay. So an intangible assets is defined as an asset that lacks physical substance. Okay. Uh, and this specifically does not go in the same category as goodwill. So I would put it probably akin more to like a patent or a trademark or a copyright where you know I got a piece of paper that says I have a copyright or I have a piece of paper that says I have a patent, but it's what that paper represents, the rights and, and that come along with it. Uh so I think it's probably the most inclusive and probably the best way of considering this. But as I mentioned, there's exceptions to all of these depending on the intention of what that person or company is doing holding that. Um uh, so I would tell you it it's it's very much, you know, it's kind of a gray area. You need to know what you're holding and then also what the intention of holding it is. And then also what type of person company is, is holding it. Okay. So, uh, crypto assets are not physical, should not be treated, uh, uh, sorry. It should be treated as intangible, unless they meet other qualifications that I previously talked about. And again, I would encourage you to check out ASC 350. Intangible with Goodwill for other guidance on how to treat and report these specific assets. And that report, as I mentioned, from PWC here is excellent. Um I put a podcast together not too long ago, specifically walking through this document and, and discussing some of the uh specifics uh that I thought were pretty interesting as it relates to it. And it's it's not long, it's maybe like 30 pages or so, but it's some of the best guidance I'm gonna come across on practical advice on how to account for this. Now, one other thing I wanted to mention, um, there are no specific disclosure requirements for holding crypto assets, uh, meaning there's nothing saying like, oh, you need to make this note to the financial statement. That's not there. Um, you know, it's going to be like, okay, like depending on how you're holding it, how much you're holding it, uh, there could be other, you know, kind of disclosure requirements that kick in, you know, because of, you know, uh, what they are, what they represent, But uh, there's nothing specifically saying like you need to disclose in your financial statements here that, um, you know, hey, I own Bitcoin, I own Ethereum or whatever they end up being. It's nothing specific related. Uh, But this is about as close as we get with respect to kind of firm guidance on how to treat uh, some of these different assets. In our next section let's go ahead and take a look at uh some of the guidance provided by the internal revenue service for how to account for these for income tax purposes. Okay? Now, frankly, the guidance provided by the IRS for um understanding how to do this for income tax purposes, to say it is limited would be uh honestly frankly like uh like not doing it justice enough. There's practically no guidance here from the IRS. And the guidance that we actually do have from the IRS comes in the form of a FAQ, a frequently asked questions. Um, That's it. We've got like 10, 10 paragraphs with respect to how to actually treat uh, a trillion dollar market cap uh, thing, you know, that is kind of shared globally around the world. And I think for the most part, that's pretty reflective of, uh, Techno, you know, kind of the speed of that technology moves versus the speed that government moves. Um, not necessarily advocating for more regulation here, although I think that would drastically help kind of stabilize the markets here. Um, but um, you know, having a little bit more, and and I think probably having a little bit uh, uh, better guidance would uh, help people navigate. Uh, you know, because some of the the murkiness as it relates to how do I account for this and pay the proper taxes related to that uh, that holding. So the, uh, if you're going to go look this up, we're going to look up IRS uh, notice 2014-21. So the guidance that we have at this point at the time of the recording is almost a decade old, coming up on it here, eight years old at least. Okay, and so as defined by the IRS, virtual currency is a digital representation of value that functions as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value, okay? So a digital representation of value. And uh, they treat it like, really kind of anything else that you might have a value. You buy it at one rate, you sell it at another rate, you either have a taxable gain, or you have a loss that may or may not be deductible, depending if it is a short-term or long-term loss, depending on how long you hold it. You know, obviously there are different rules for short-term losses uh, versus long-term losses that can be carried over to future periods, okay? Now in some environments it operates like real currency, you know, the coin and paper, the money, like for example, here in the United States. Okay. However, um, in the eyes of the IRS, it does not have legal tender status in any other jurisdiction. So really it's not currency in the eyes of the IRS either. Okay. Um, uh, now I'm going to point out, as I mentioned, this guidance comes from 2014 in 2014, we did not have central bank backed digital currencies, these CBDCs here. Uh, and this guidance has not been updated to reflect any sort of changes in technologies that have occurred. Okay. So just pointing that out, you know, even though the technologies change, the guidance that we have is still quite limited. Okay. Virtual currency that has equivalent value to real currency or access as a substitute of real currency is referred to as convertible virtual currency. Okay. However, it is not and they are very clear about this. It is not a foreign currency in the eyes of the, of the IRS. You know, it's not that, uh, you know, Bitcoin for example, is, uh, you know, like a Euro or a great British pound, you know, there's not a country or a group of countries behind it. Um, so therefore it does not meet the qualifications of what a foreign currency is. Okay. So specific guidance here from the IRS, how is virtual currency treated? This is these answers just so we're clear These answers are explicitly coming and I have not modified or otherwise edited their responses. These are verbatim from the IRS's website. How is virtual currency treated for federal tax purposes? Okay. For federal tax purposes, virtual currency is treated as property property. So property could be anything from collectibles to, you know, assets in your house that uh, you bought at one price and sold at another, you know, it's property. Okay. And uh, if you sell it at a higher price, you have a gain. If you sell it at a lower price, you have a loss. What is the basis of virtual currency received as payment for goods or services? So if I'm a merchant and somebody pays me in Bitcoin, what is the basis? Okay. A big piece of this where a lot of people end up getting messed up with respect to uh, their um, foreign currency trend or not foreign currency, sorry, their virtual currency transactions, their Bitcoin and Ethereum transactions here, where a lot of people get screwed up on is they don't track for tax purposes with respect to um, their basis here. Okay. And you really need to be clear about basis on this and to track it because in the eyes of the IRS, every uh, transaction that you conduct is a potential taxable event. And then if, because it's a taxable event, we very importantly and clearly need to be able to know our basis so that we can properly calculate a gain or loss. Okay. And so if we get paid in a Bitcoin or something else like that, the basis of the virtual currency that the taxpayer receives is at the FMV fair market value of the uh, transaction at the time of receipt. So if somebody pays us, for example, at that that's exact moment, we go look up the fair market value and that's what the basis of that transaction would be. Okay does the taxpayer have a gain or loss upon the exchange of virtual currency or other property? Yes. Okay. For the most part in almost all circumstances, any type of crypto, um, sale, you know, obviously buying doesn't create a taxable event here, but sort of crypto sale is triggering a taxable event. Okay. And this is where you need to be able to calculate and compare what you bought it for versus what you sold it for. And if the fair market value of the property at the time a sale is higher than the basis. Well, then you're going to have a gain. If it's lower then you're going to have that loss. Okay. Okay. The taxpayer, um, has to be able to calculate this and be able to recall this information to determine if in fact they've got a gain or loss and then appropriately file this on, I would assume the schedule D gain or loss, unless it was held in some sort of business and it, or, you know, it needed to be reported on through some sort of other tax uh, mechanism. Okay. How do we determine the fair market value? Pretty good question here. I mean, how do you know the fair market value of something? I mean, there are lots of exchanges. The price of Bitcoin uh, isn't hundred percent uniform across these different exchanges. If you look at the price of Bitcoin in Coinbase versus Kraken versus Binance versus Gemini versus any of these, you're going to see slight variations here. Okay. So Uh, What we want to know, well, first and foremost, we're going to report this in U.S. dollars. So ultimately it has to come back to U.S. dollars. And depending on when you buy and sell this, stuff, that may or may not be advantageous to you. Okay. And so what you need to do is you need to go to one of these exchanges. I would tell you um, what you should probably find. And this is also what's discussed in the uh, Pricewaterhouse uh, Gap book. Is you want to find the largest market that that particular currency is trading, and again, I think any of the big ones here, Coinbase or or uh, Kraken, you know, any of these big ones, you know, there's a fair volume uh, of these transactions, and you look at whatever that rate is at that time of uh, of that transaction, that would become your rate. And what you want to look at in this particular case is, you know, what the price of um, Bitcoin to U.S. dollars would be, and that's a fairly easy thing to be able to determine. And you just take that times the number of units that you're selling, or you know, it could be tens, hundreds, thousands, ten thousands of a, of a Bitcoin or, um, whatever it ends up. And then you just do the necessary math to figure out the fair market value. Okay. This virtual currency received by an independent contractor for performing services constitutes self-employment income? No brainer here. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So self-employment income, um, would be, you know, basically all gross income derived by that individual in exchange for that, that, uh, uh, crypto that you've received. Now there's some practical implications here. You know, I can't buy a I can't, you know, buy a house with Bitcoin at the moment. I can't buy groceries or food for my family with Bitcoin at the moment. And if you receive this as payment, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you also got to remember you're going to pay self-employment taxes on this, you know, and, uh, if you don't cash out or at least have the, the, uh, the money to be able to ta- pay the taxes on it, um, that could be an issue you know, and I've actually spoken with people, um, who have asked me tax questions about cryptocurrency. They didn't realize that they needed to pay taxes on this, if they got paid with, with crypto, you know? So let's just say hypothetically, somebody pays you a hundred thousand bucks, you know, and you just get that crypto, you know, let's just say it's a thousand, let's say Ethereum, which is roughly about a thousand uh, dollars a coin now. And somebody gives you a hundred of those coins. Okay. Well, you might not sell those coins, but realize you made self-employment earnings off of this. You're going to owe, I don't know, 15 to $20,000 at minimum with respect to self-employment taxes. And I know my audience here, you know, that are mostly financial and tax professionals, the answer is duh, of course you would. Uh, but you wouldn't believe the number of people I've spoken to over the last couple of years that just didn't put two and two together. Uh, that just because it's not dollars um, doesn't mean that you're outside of uh, whatever requirements there are for reporting and uh, for tax purposes. Now there are some important disclosure requirements that we should at least acknowledge with respect to, to the IRS, uh, the IRS has begun asking cryptocurrency questions at the, uh, when you go to file your tax return. Uh, so in 2021, they asked the question at any time during 2021, did you receive, sell exchange or otherwise dispose of any financial interest in virtual currencies? So that's a question they're asking here. Uh, and this question, you know, it's just a general question now. I mean, and you're required to answer it. Okay. So all taxpayers have to answer this question. It's kind of tricky if you don't really kind of know what they're asking here. Okay. You only have to check yes. If you uh, sold, um, if you sold anything really, or you exchanged for value. Okay. So um, if you bought or if you're holding, you know, so if you already had it or you bought Bitcoin, you bought Ethereum, that doesn't constitute a yes to this particular question. Okay. So you answer yes. If you're in the business of exchanging or selling these virtual currencies, you answer no. Um, if you just own it, you don't have any of it to begin with. So if you're not involved at all, if you don't own any cryptocurrency, any crypto assets, no NFTs, you like, no. Um, you'd also select, no, if you're just holding them too, you know? So, um, you know, if you're just having as you know, kind of something that you're hoping to be able to sell at a higher price later on, uh, you could go ahead and select "No there as well. And I've got some specific uh, from insight here that you could follow um you know to kind of figure out uh, you know how how to best answer this question for yourself or for your clients Now, as I mentioned, where a lot of taxpayers get screwed up is trying to figure out exactly how to exactly disclose this um, and how exactly to be able to account for this for income tax purposes. And uh, frankly, it could be quite difficult. Um, Many years ago, I had a very, very dear friend of mine uh, who was uh, pretty active uh, in buying and selling cryptocurrency and didn't even think about the tax implications of this and was buying and selling from lots of different wallets. And the big critical mistake that this person made was not tracking information right from the get-go. And the other big mistake that they made was not realizing that selling Bitcoin to buy Ethereum uh, or buying some sort of other digital asset uh, was a taxable event. You know, just because you you have Ethereum and you sell it to buy Ripple or you 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 buy you know something else, uh, that's a taxable event. I mean, just because they're both crypto doesn't make it non-taxable. A lot of people, for example, feel like oh well, it's only taxable if I take it out of crypto back to dollars. No, between these different currencies, you know, digital asset types, that represents a you know it, that represents a taxable event in the eyes of the IRS. So you got to track all of this. And frankly, this is too difficult for most people. And so I would really recommend a solution, something to basically manage this uh, process for you. And I've looked at lots of different products that are out there uh, and there are plenty of great ones, but the one I've kind of settled on, the one I use and I've got my clients using as well, uh, many practitioners that I've spoken with and have had pretty good luck with it is a solution called Legible. Okay, now what Legible is, is it's a website platform that you can use to track Um, your holdings across pretty much every exchange and every major crypto asset type. Um, You can either key in your data yourself or what's really kind of cool about it. You can plug in your wallet address and it will extract those transactions for you. Uh, And if you're pretty diligent about making sure all the information's in the system, it does a really good job of being able to run all the necessary tax calculations to figure out ultimately, like do you have what's your tax position here? Uh, Do you, for example, you know, at the end of the year, um have gains or losses based off of your purchases and disposals or you know if if it's going to do a really good job of making sure you have all the necessary information to be able to figure out your best tax position. Now what separates Legible compared to some of the other products out there is that Legible is designed for uh professional practitioners. It, they have a consumer version of this, so you could run this as an individual, but what I think really kind of makes this cool is the fact that if you're running a public tax practice, you could license this for your firm and then be able to use this for all of your clients. Uh, so if you have a client that walks in and they've got Bitcoin transactions or Ethereum transactions and you need to figure out that gain or loss, you, you can do though you know, you can do so. And it's got a client portal, it's got really good security. Um, you know, you can track client progress and ultimately what this will do is it will produce all the necessary information for you to figure out the gains and losses for that particular client. Uh, and it'll even go all the way to produce the schedule D or the information you need to produce that schedule D, uh, where you can calculate that, uh, uh, either short-term long-term gain or loss. Uh, you can check them out by going to legible.io. The company that behind this is called VeriDay. Super nice people, very, very uh, helpful, great customer service. And if you need help getting this set up, they've got great resources and support articles to help you learn how to leverage this product effectively. And uh, I, it's definitely worth a look if you have any sort of client or yourself uh, that you need to track your tax positions for crypto. Let's go ahead and have another review question. How are taxable events involving cryptocurrencies usually presented on a tax return? Okay. So the key answer here is usually, uh, I'm going to point out with respect to tracking of, um, information on a tax return. It varies. Um, uh, you know, if it's a business, if it's an individual, if it's an estate, if it's a trust, if it's a whatever, you know, I'm talking your generic run of the mill person, individual. Okay. And so for your generic run of the mill individual, it's going to be on the schedule D gain and loss on investments. You know, it it gets reported in the same place that your stock, your bond transactions are going to get reported. Okay. Uh, it is not going to get reported on the schedule B schedule B is for interest and dividends, which crypto is definitely not. Okay. And that's where you would not report it. There, uh, schedule L, uh, I don't even know what that is. I don't even know if there is a schedule L it's a made up answer here. There is no specific schedule for gains and losses on crypto. So the correct answer here again is going to be that schedule D gain and loss on investments. Now we're getting towards the end of our time here together. So why don't we finish with just kind of a brief discussion with maybe how you could get involved with public blockchains and specifically cryptocurrency. Okay. And I'm going to preface this by saying First and foremost, do your own due diligence, do a ton of research. When you feel like you've known this enough, go back and do more research. I've been involved in crypto and public blockchains for over a decade now, and I still get curveballs every now and then. Um, I really wanna emphasize the importance that you study this, understand this at a very, very deep level, because people have absolutely been swindled, been taken advantage of, have had security events, data breaches, ransomware, And very, 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 uh, many, many examples of people who have ended up losing a tremendous, tremendous amount of money, uh, with respect to this. So please, 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 please thousand times over, do your own research and educate yourself before proceeding here. Okay. Remember it's unregulated almost entirely. So there's no one 800 number to call, you know, if, if something bad happens. Okay. So. I'm going to talk you through a couple of things here, what it looks like to create a wallet. Um, from that point, you're going to want to go buy crypto. You're going to do that on a crypto exchange. Uh, then you're going to move that crypto to some sort of wallet for you to be able to use. And um, I personally recommend offline wallets or hardware wallets to be able to support. Uh, but if you wanted to go and buy, this would be some of the rough steps. This isn't perfect. Don't quote me on this, uh, but I'm going to try to give you my at least best steps to get involved. And uh, again, please do uh, your own due diligence and do some research before attempting this on your own. So first things first, you're going to need to get yourself a wallet. There are lots and lots of different types of wallets that are out there. Um, They kind of come in two major categories, an online wallet and an offline wallet. Okay. So a wallet, just like your normal traditional wallet, somewhere that you put your credit cards, your money, crypto wallets, same things where you're going to put and hold your crypto private key, which will then represent your crypto on the blockchain. Okay. And so an online wallet is typically something that's going to be stored with an exchange. And so if you were to buy, for example, on Bitcoin, on Coinbase, Coinbase will give you a wallet, generate a wallet and Coinbase would technically hold your crypto. It would be stored with them in their repository. And so ultimately you're trusting that particular exchange to store that information securely. Now, depending on what exchange you work with, as Coinbase as I was speaking to you as an example, they have lots of different types of wallets. They have hardware wallets or not hardware wallets. They have uh, cold storage wallets, hot wallets. Um, that's one that's basically you can take the money in and out of the exchange quickly. A cold wallet or a offline wallet is something where it is not as easy to get the money back into the market. Um, but it's kind of like putting your money into a safety deposit box. It's kind of the best way I think of it. And so, just determines like how fast do you want to trade. You know, in my instances. Uh, I personally recommend if you're going to buy and hold, uh, use an offline wallet where you're not storing your money in Coinbase and then running the risk that Coinbase is going to have some sort of data uh, breach, um, but rather, you know, kind of printing that private key, putting it in a safety deposit box or somewhere else. Online wallets have come a long way though. Um, I still think we have a long way to go though. Okay. So if you plan on holding your investment long-term, it's really recommended you use some sort of offline wallet, private wallet that you directly control. There are some great hardware wallets um, like physical hardware devices with two-factor authentication, no matter, uh, that you can use to access that and secure that wallet from there. And when you create a wallet, it's going to create a private key. Okay. within with, with uh, cryptocurrency, uh, it creates a public key and a private key. Okay. And the public key is what you're going to give out to other people. The private key is what you're going to use to ultimately, you know, unlock your wallet and be able to access your resources inside of it. But the public key is like your address, it's your email address. It's a Your location on the blockchain for people to be able to send you something. So using Ethereum as an example here, which is again, one example of many different public blockchains that are out there. Uh, One of the tools I've used is this thing called MyEtherWallet, and you can go there and you can instantly create a unique wallet address on the blockchain. It'll create a new wallet for you. Uh, It's going to ask you to secure this with a long random password. If you're using a password manager, absolutely consider, um, absolutely uh, use that. And you're going to want to store that password in a safe and secure math method uh, that only you have access to or people you trust. Okay. You're going to download what's called a key store file. Okay. That is going to be how you access that account in the future. And then ultimately you can download your private key and that's how it's the most important component of all this. And that private key is your way of unlocking that wallet. And once it's generated, it's never generated again. So, um, it's a one way type uh, of, uh, encryption algorithm. And once it generates that private key for you, uh, that's your key. And so definitely you want to make sure that you secure uh, these particular things. The par- The public address, the public key, that's fine. That's what you're going to give to other people to send you money, to receive money, something else of that nature. Um, and you share it with other people. It's the destination address for people to send you funds or metadata, or smart contract or anything else like that. Now the private key and the public key look very different. The private key will be longer though. And this is how you're going to unlock your wallet and access your, your funds here. Okay. You should absolutely 1000% back this up in multiple safe places. Uh, I personally recommend a, you know, safety deposit box, a, a safe that you securely store. Uh, I would tell you to safeguard it the same way that you would cash, you know, ideally have it more than one place. And, uh, but that are always under lock and key that only you can access, now it's super important though, do not store your private key, this address here on any device in an unencrypted manner at any time. So once that's you know kind of displayed to you and you download it, you print it off, you put it in a safety deposit box, you use a hardware wallet, like a Ledger Nano S or something else of that nature, you store that private key and you make sure that that is uh, removed from the actual computer you're on. There are plenty of examples of ransomware and other malware that when they infect your computer. They will come in and they will uh, search your computer for private uh, blockchain keys and then steal whatever money you have in your crypto. So if you're not familiar on these topics, there are plenty of YouTube videos, watch a couple of videos cause you're gonna get different people's perspective and um, they'll tell you some best practices with respect to how do you safeguard your keys. Now, ultimately you're gonna wanna go out to an exchange. There are lots of different exchanges. I personally would recommend one based here in the United States, uh, Coinbase, Kraken, uh, both of those are based here in the US, okay? Some exchanges are are going to be a little more friendly and easy to work with. Coinbase is probably the easiest, okay? Again, not an endorsement, just pointing it out. Um, but, um, you know, you can pick whatever one that you'd like. Now, there's also uh, kind of professional tools. Coinbase Pro is a good example of that. Kraken, I've always found to be a little bit more professional oriented as well. You're going to go, they're going to have their own application that you're going to need to follow through. They've got their own identity check and other types of verifications to ensure that you are who you are. A lot of this is going to put in place for money laundering. And uh, these exchanges work very similar to how like a TD Ameritrade or a uh, a Morgan Stanley or a Merrill might work work, where they have to take certain documentation to hold on record to know who uh, who you are. Okay. Ultimately, then you're going to put in an order. Okay, it's just like buying a stock or other type of financial instrument. Uh, you put in an order. You can put in. There's all different types of orders you can put in. A limit order is a good example that you'll buy it at a specific price, but only when that price is available. You could put it in a market order, but if the price shoots up, you're going to pay that market price, and that could be a lot more than you want. Here, uh, typically, these places will let you pay with uh, um, credit cards, but if you're going to do it through any sort of high volume ACH or wire transfer, is going to be the preferred method. Um, from experience, though don't feel like you're going to find the right time to buy. Um, yeah, <laughs> it just seems like you look at it and the price changes. So it, it's really kind of hard. And I would also tell you, never overextend yourself, just like any sort of uh financial, you know, thing here, you don't want to put in more than you're willing to lose. Um, and as, as I think I've said throughout this presentation, I've made and lost a lot of money over the years on this, um, seemingly, and sometimes even just days, Uh, So you want to, you know, definitely be conscious of the risk that's, and don't uh, overextend yourself. Okay. Now, once you buy it, if you're going to hold it for a long period of time, you're definitely going to want to transfer that off of the exchange, or if you're going to keep it in the exchange, put it into cold storage uh, with as much security and procedure and, and security protocols that you can put in front of it to ensure that it is not compromised. Now, if you use an offline wallet where you basically transfer it out of the exchange, you put it into a private blockchain address you're gonna store that securely. Um, Just be aware that when you make that transfer, it could take a little bit of time, anywhere from a couple of minutes to an hour, just depending on uh, that transaction uh, and how many transactions are being processed at that moment. Okay, and when you wanna go and sell it, basically you log in, you go the opposite of this direction, you move it back to the exchange, you transfer it back to that wallet, then you sell it on the open market, just like you would any other type of security. Let's go ahead and have our final review question. What are some of the examples of best practices for managing private keys? Well, the correct answer here is all of the above. And while every answer in particular is correct on its own, the correct answer is that all of these answers in conjunction are best practices that you should follow. Okay. You should keep that private key in the strictest of confidence and keep it confidential. Don't share your private key with anybody, um, that you wouldn't want to have access. Treat it like you would, you would treat cash okay it absolutely should be stored on an encrypted device uh behind locking key behind a password okay you absolutely should have a backup copy that should be kept in a different location offline and secure safety deposit boxes kind of my go to example but you should follow all of these best practices and guidance well folks that does bring us to the end of our presentation for today and really to kind of summarize this, what I want to say is that, you know, you should think of blockchain and cryptocurrency as really still being infant and really uh, kind of on the bleeding edge with respect to where technology is. Um, you know, and there's a long way that these technologies have come and will continue to go. And think of something like the internet, you know, compare your thoughts to the internet in 1996, you know, to where the internet is today. I mean, I always think it's interesting to look back on, you know, some of the news articles and, and uh, you know, footage from those local news stations talking about people are using electronic mail and people are buying things on the internet through this company called amazon and you know fast forward 20 years later i mean all of this seems commonplace you know the internet has dominated everything for that matter i mean and it is such a huge component of our day-to-day lives i'm not saying crypto is going to go there but it could um you know it could have the impact to financial markets in the same way um, that, uh, the internet had impact to communication markets, but we got years before we're going to start to see, you know, kind of mainstream adoption. Um, but it's happening. I mean, it's happening year over year. And I will point out there are measurable successes every year with this. Uh, and I think it could have potential impact with respect to the future of the world. Uh, and where I really kind of get excited with this is, uh, with respect to not just here in the United States, but I get really excited thinking about emerging markets, You know, I think about, for example, that farmer in in East Asia or, you know, that merchant in Africa that doesn't have the same equal access to financial institutions that we do here in the Western world. You know, I can't throw a rock and not hit five banks on Main Street here in my town. You know, I can open a checking account like that, you know, but I think about people who don't have that same access and uh, with blockchain and with crypto, we're providing them a mechanism to be able to, you know, be able to really kind of come up with where the rest of the world is. And equal access to these uh, financial institutions. And now that farmer or that merchant in that far flung region, you know, even though they don't have access maybe to easy banks and credit like the way we do, well, now they can start to participate. And I think that's really cool. So in our presentation, we talked a lot about cryptocurrency and blockchain. We looked at public blockchain, private blockchain, permission blockchain. Uh, We looked at uh, how cryptocurrency mining works, how we verify transactions through proof of work and proof of stake. We talked about some of the accounting issues uh, as it relates to applying gap principles to crypto, as well as some of the tax issues as it relates to the IRS uh, and how we need to figure out crypto holdings for income tax purposes as well. We took a lot of uh, look at some of the specific, um, let's call them niches of uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency, including things like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, smart contracts, ICOs, central bank-backed digital currencies, and more. So I feel like we've covered a lot of ground, and I hope and very much hope that you, uh, you learned a lot today. Now, if anybody has any questions on the materials that have been discussed or presented, uh, by all means, please feel free to reach out to me at any point. I love helping people. Uh, it's one of my absolute favorite things to do. And if there's a question I can answer for you, uh, by all means, please feel free to reach out. My information is being displayed here. Uh, email is my preferred method of communication. So please uh, feel free to shoot me an email. It might take me a day or two to get back to you, depending on my teaching and work schedule. Um, but I do respond to all the messages that I get. Thank you so much for your time and attention here today. Uh, It was a pleasure presenting this information to you. Uh, I think I have the greatest job in the world, and it's uh, because of you nice folks attending and taking our classes. And so on behalf of myself, my partners, and colleagues at K2 and at your uh, sponsoring organization, thank you so much for choosing uh, this class, and thank you so much for attending. I very much hope to see you in another presentation soon. Best wishes and good luck. Thank you so much for attending our presentation and podcast for today. As a reminder, you can check out cpetoday.com for all your continuing education needs. We have courses on every topic you can think of, from accounting to audit to ethics and regulation and more. Everything you need to know to stay relevant, current, and up-to-date with the profession. Again, check out cpetoday.com. If you're a new watcher or listener to the CPE Today podcast, again, We offer you a free course and a free credit for you to try our services. Pick the podcast of your choosing and use coupon code 1FREEPODCAST at checkout to make that purchase free. If you enjoyed our presentation, please consider connecting with us on social media and let us know what you think. You can find us just about everywhere at CPE Today, uh, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more. And please consider subscribing to us wherever you happen to receive your content. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and others. We'd love for you to leave a review and let us know what you think. It helps new listeners and watchers find our course and content. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Thank you for being in the office, and we look forward to seeing you back here soon. Take care.